Right. So you're thinking, what does that have to do with our lesson today? Um, as I was preparing for this, I heard a sermon, and they kept talking about the unicorn goat from our passage, and I just kept seeing this video in my head. Now, I picture him probably a little more ominous than that one. That one's awfully adorable, but I just wanted to share with you what I was picturing as I was reading this passage today, which is a fun one, isn't it? Um, (laughs) You've all, I'm sure, been enjoying going through this interesting uh, vision we get here in Daniel 8. Um, So before we jump in, let's go to God in prayer. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for passages like this that are just so fun to go through together, Lord. I pray that you would just uh, speak through it to us, Lord, here today. I pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts what you want us to know as we leave this place. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so today we come to another passage that is part of this genre of apocalyptic literature, um, which those of you who walked through Revelation with us are familiar with apocalyptic literature and just how fun it is. Um, And so within this genre, it's common practice that animals might represent kingdoms and their horns stand for kings. And so that's what we have here today in our passage. Animals are personified to help explain these kings and their actions. Um, But this kind of animal imagery is not completely foreign to us. For instance, that first video um, is all about a unicorn. She just really wants to find a unicorn. And when you see a unicorn, we picture something magical. It's fantasy. And um, perhaps something you might be more familiar with is a snake. Oftentimes, if you see a snake, you automatically think of of evil, like this snake here from the Jungle Book, Ka, um, you think when you see a snake of evil, which is biblical. Um, and then another example would be owls. Now, I'm not sure where this comes from. Maybe somebody can enlighten me, but for some reason, owls are usually representing wisdom. And um, like Owl from the Winnie the Pooh is always the really smart one for some reason. Um, And then, of course, being the Disney fan that I am, I couldn't not mention Mickey Mouse, um, who, of course, when we see Mickey Mouse, we think of joy and fun, especially of a child or a grown adult. Um, And so all this to say, this kind of animal imagery that we have here in our passage isn't completely foreign to us. And here we have a ram and a goat with their horns butting up against each other and a picture of power and conflict. Um, And so let's jump into our passage. Verses 1 through 2 kind of gives us a little um, background of a little introduction to our vision, if you will. So it says, in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. So Daniel sees himself in this vision in the citadel of Susa. 
This location is the capital of the Persian Empire, so it makes sense that this is where he sees himself because that relates to the interpretation of our passage as we know it deals with the new empire that comes up, the Persian Empire. Um, And this vision is in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, which ties it sort of with the last chapter, chapter 7, which was in the first year of his reign. And there are some similarities between these two passages. They're sort of linked. However, in chapter 7, we had magical beasts. um, And we're here today. We have more everyday animals that are easier for us to picture and would have been easier for them to picture, probably seeing them most days. Um, And so let's look a little closer at these animals in our passage, looking at verses 3 through 8. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns, standing beside the canal. The horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram. As it charged towards the west and the north and the south, no animal could stand against it. And none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and its place, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. So, as we know from verse 20 of our passage, we get an interpretation of this vision. And so, this two-horned ram represents the kings of the Medes and the Persians. Here we see one horn rises up higher than the other, suggesting dominance of one of these two empires. And we know from history that the Persian Empire dominated thanks to Cyrus the Great. Here we see this ram charging in all different directions, which, as I stated, suggests this vision is all about power and about conflict. However, this ram cannot stand against our unicorn goat. Many would say that even without the interpretation we get in verse 21, it still would have been clear that this ram or this goat with its one horn charging from the west would have symbolized Alexander the Great. This beast represents an empire that achieved tremendous expansion very quickly. Alexander the Great achieved unprecedented domination, but he died suddenly at the age of 33 in 323 BC. And it was then that his kingdom was divided among his four generals, which is why we see the vision moves to them having, to it having four horns come up after. So, um, Ernest Lucas in his commentary describes the history of this time really clearly. He says, Cyrus's raid, so this is the Persian Empire, from the Median vassal to the ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire was impressive. Even more impressive was his expansion of this empire, earning him the epithet, the great. 
Under him and his successors, the Persian Empire became the largest, most powerful empire that had yet existed in the Near East. It became great, and it seemed irresistible. Yet it collapsed in the space of only three years before the onslaught of Alexander's army. In less than 10 years, he carved out an empire that had surpassed that of the Persians, the first to unite Europe with the Near East and Northern India. But at the peak of his power, he fell ill and died, and his empire was split. So, doesn't this history sound kind of familiar to the history that we've been hearing? And doesn't it fit with the theme of our book? Kingdoms rise, and then kingdoms fall. They rise, and they often seem unstoppable. But inevitably, they fall. But God's kingdom lasts forever. So now we move into the climax of our story, and that is the little horn. Daniel 8, verses 9 through 10. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but it grew in power to the south, to the east, toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the hosts of heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. So commentators are pretty much in unanimous agreement that this little horn is referring to Antiochus IV, who calls himself Epiphanes. So the question that some have asked is, why all this fuss over this relatively obscure king? Some even suggest that the power of Alexander's empire was greater, and so this almost seems like a distortion of history that we have this focus on the little horn in our chapter. However, what we have here is history from a particular point of view, and that point of view is God's. Because what is significant about this little horn is that it turns toward God's covenant people. Alexander may have been an evil man, but this little horn focuses its evil directed is, is directed with hatred at God's people and God himself. Daniel 8 here is to help God's people prepare for what they're going to have to face under this little horn. So, a little history about Antiochus. Antiochus IV had wormed his way into power by 175 B.C., he was apparently a bit quirky. He could slide from warmly sociable to terribly tyrannical. He gave himself this self-descriptive title, Epiphanes, meaning the appearance of God or God manifest. However, many believed that Epimanes, which means madman, would have been far more appropriate for him. What is important for our context, however, is the way that he treated God's people and defiled the temple. So Ferguson, in his commentary, describes the terrible events of this day. Antiochus was power-hungry, and he sought to expand his dominion to include Palestine. In Jerusalem, he replaced the high priest with a man of his own choosing. Then he invaded Egypt, and while he was away, a rumor of his death circulated among the Jews. During this time, efforts were made to reinstate the high priest. However, this caused Antiochus to accuse the people of rebellion, 
So he savagely attacked Jerusalem, executing tens of thousands of its inhabitants, 40,000 apparently dying within the space of three days. He entered the Holy of Holies in the temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar of burnt offering, defiled the temple precincts, took the sacred furniture, and established a traitor, Menelaus, as the high priest. Later, in 168 BC, Antiochus's efforts to take Egypt were foiled by the Romans, so he took his anger out again on the Jews. More than 20,000 of his soldiers massacred the Jews, assembled for worship on a Sabbath day, and committed further atrocities. The temple was left without daily sacrifice. Religious practices became non-existent, and a statue of Zeus was placed in the temple and human sacrifices made on the altar. Circumcision was forbidden, unclean meat was mandatory fare, and the Sabbath and other feast days were profaned. With all of this in mind, doesn't it make sense then that Daniel has a vision preparing and warning the people for this day, for what they would face under Antiochus, because they had never before faced what they met under Antiochus IV, a program that was designed to eradicate completely every trace of Israel's faith, their worship, and their life. Some may have asked the question during this time if God's own ground can be invaded, if the practices where God's people connect in relationship with him can be destroyed, can even the security of the universe be relied upon? So in John 16, 1 through 4, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the hatred the world would have for him and his disciples. In verse 1, he says, All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. After he goes on to describe the persecution that they face, that they will face, he says in verse 4, I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember I warned you about them. This might be a good summary of Daniel 8. Our chapter here today, warning them of the hard times that were to come so that they could stand firm, so that they could persevere. So let's take this one step further and look at how our passage describes the wickedness of this little horn. Verses 11 through 12. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and their daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. So there are three acts of wickedness here in our passage. He takes away the daily sacrifice, he throws down the sanctuary, and he throws down the truth. These three areas, I believe illustrate three areas of our spiritual life that Satan uses to attack God's people. One sermon I heard described these three areas as blasphemy, persecution, and lies. So let's look at these. First of all, blasphemy. The sacrifices are thrown down. You have to remember that sacrifice was a big part of their daily lives before God. Sacrifice was how they come in relationship to God. It's how they get forgiveness and can once again share a relationship with the God they serve. So no wonder this is what Antiochus sought to put an end to. And so I think for us, it is important for us to 
daily, and I mean daily, remember the sacrifice that Christ did on the cross for our sins makes us completely forgiven so that we can enjoy right relationship and fellowship with God. In his commentary, Ferguson says, Let Satan draw us away from Christ's sacrifice, and our consciences will cloud over with guilt, and the joy and assurance of fellowship with God will be dissipated. This is why we're taught to pray in our daily prayer, forgive us our debts, and then remember that we no longer have to carry guilt. We are forgiven because the evil one wants us to carry guilt, because guilt is what pulls us away from God. And it's what pulls us away from one another as well. Which brings me to my next point, persecution. He cast down the sanctuary. You see, Satan today seeks to destroy the new temple of God, the living fellowship we share with God's people. How easy it is for him to sometimes blind us to the necessity of maintaining peace and unity in the body of Christ. We need each other. And then the third area or tactic of wickedness here is lies. He casts the truth to the ground. This is probably a reference to the fact that Antiochus burnt the Torah scrolls and anyone found possessing the Book of the Covenant or adhering to the laws um, were were condemned to death by his decree. But today, Satan is very skilled at introducing wrong thinking. He is cunning with his lies about who we are, about who God is, about what Christ has done. We have to hold on to the truth of Scripture and the truth of what God says. Now, one commentator I read said that Belshazzar, who is the acting king at this point, um, may have been a pale foreshadowing to this little horn. Now, you might remember him from chapter 5. He desecrated the temple vessels from Jerusalem, using them in the worship for pagan gods. His fate was sealed by the hand of heaven, which gives us a glimpse of what is going to happen to this small horn as well. Now, I bring this up because I think we see a pattern in history of the way that wickedness is. These are tactics used by evil all throughout history, and I think they're used today as well. Blasphemy, persecution, and lies. They were the tactics of Antiochus in order to pull the people from God, from one another, and from the truth. And I think they're used today. Blasphemy, when we start to think that we have not been fully forgiven, when we carry some sort of guilt or shame that pulls us away from God, that is exactly what Satan wants us to do. Or persecution, when he gives us little things that cause us to separate from one another and to break the unity of the body of Christ. Things that pull us apart that probably shouldn't really even matter. And lies. He distorts the truth about who God is, about who we are, about what Christ has done for us. And so Daniel 8 is 
a message for God's people that they're going to face some really hard times. And he gives them a glimpse of this so that they can stand strong. They can persevere and endure when they face this really hard time. And I think it's a message for us today as well. To put on the armor of God, as we see in Ephesians, because the tactics of the devil are the same today as they were then, so we can be prepared for them. So that we too can persevere and endure as we face hard times. So then we come to verses 13 through 14 and we get a question from heaven. How long? It says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, It will be 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. So first of all, I think that it's significant to note that this cry of how long doesn't come from Daniel, but comes from one of the holy ones here. One commentator said that it's almost as if heaven's legions enter sympathetically into the anguish and duress of God's earthly people. And this cry is reminiscent of what we see in many of the Psalms of lament. For instance, Psalm 6-3. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Or Psalm 13, 1 through 2. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemies triumph over me? Brueggemann lists four questions that come up in the Psalms of Lament, and I think they're questions that we face when we have hard times as well. Why, when we see senseless suffering, where, where is our God? Related to that, is the Lord among us or not? And of course, finally, how long? And I think it's a bit of love and grace. This question is asked by what almost seems to be one of God's angels themselves. How long? But the answer is somewhat mysterious, isn't it? 2,300 evenings and mornings. What in the world does that mean? Many have tried to understand what this means. They've tried to calculate how this relates to the dates of Antiochus or whatever and how we can figure out what this number exactly means. But as with many numbers in apocalyptic literature, I think if we try to do that, we're missing the point. This is not a little quick amount of time. It's significant. However, it's limited nonetheless. God, as we have seen, and thank goodness, time and time again, is a patient God beyond our wildest dreams. He will give it time, but then when the wickedness reaches its full, he will not let it go on forever. There is a limited time for this. And so I think the purpose of this number is not for us to set a date, but for us to have comfort. He has set a limit to this present evil. It will come to an end. Which brings me to my next part. Verse 19. He said, I am going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. 
So here's the fun part. What in the world is meant by the time of the end in our passage? Many jump this to mean the end times, which is the end of the world, the second coming of Christ, etc. However, I would caution you not to jump there with this passage. You see, oftentimes the Hebrew prophets use this term, the end, to refer to the end of a particular evil state of affairs. So an example of this would be Amos 8. Amos gets a vision of a basket of figs. And through this vision, he learns that God is exacting judgment. And the people are going to experience, for their generation, an end. I like how one sermon I heard by Chris Wright explained this concept. He said that sometimes these events are signposts along the way to the ultimate end one day. For Amos, the end had come for that generation. The same is true here as the end comes for this wickedness exacted against God's people by Antiochus. Later in 70 AD, we get another ending or signpost with the destruction of the temple. This, right suggests, is a patterning of endings that we see throughout history. Eventually, it will be the final end. But until then, we have this patterning of endings, and we need faithful endurance through them, which I believe is the theme of our passage So then, Daniel has this vision, and what is his response? We hear that in verse 27. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. So how does Daniel respond to this vision? First of all, he is greatly affected by it. He is not indifferent to this vision, even though he's learning that this vision probably deals with things that are farther into the future than he is actually going to experience. He may not have to face these particular days of evil, but he is burdened for the kingdom of God. He has such a zeal for God's kingdom that this vision greatly affects him. However, his next response is to get up and go back about the king's business. He went back to the place that God had put him, but he goes back with a new and adjusted worldview. He is at work knowing the sovereignty of God. He is at work anticipating evil to come so that he is not surprised by it. You see, he would never be the same. His knowledge allowed him to live already for the kingdom. Is it surprising then that he has such an effect on the queen that we see in Daniel 5? Daniel had the assurance that no matter what was going on in the world, it would not go on forever. So, how do you close a passage like this? Um, As I thought about how to close, I thought we started today with animal imagery, so I thought it might be appropriate to then end with it. So, today I'd like to end with a passage that, if you walked through Revelation, you are very familiar with this. 
Um, and it's Revelation 5, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read through this as you look at this image on the screen. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God's, God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. So I close today to tell you that we are not in the middle of a history of rams and goats fighting to the death. We are in a history of a lamb on the throne who has been slain for us. And so with that in mind, the song today is by Chris Tomlin called, Is He Worthy? Let's listen to this song. Close in prayer. Father God, you are worthy. Lord, as we um, read this passage, Lord, and we, we know that there are evil things out there, Lord, and that hard times are going to come, and that could fill us with a sense of fear. But today, Lord, I pray that you would banish that fear and instead that we would rest on the truth that you are worthy and that you are on the throne. May we trust in that and trust in your sovereignty because you control everything and you have it all in your hands and you want good for us. Lord, I pray that you would be in the midst of our discussions today. May it be a blessing and help us to know how we can leave here today um, and live in light of all of this truth that you are on the throne no matter what we face. We thank you and we love you. In your name I pray, amen.